elegant weapon for a more civilized age. Gentlemen, welcome to an elegant weapon episode 433. My name is Jay, J.M. Clark, Jay the Jedi Ross, and it is so wonderful after a month long absence to have all you beautiful babies back here with us. Uh, sorry I've been away, kids. I've had lots of adventures going on, lots of cool traveling. It began with Fan Expo Philadelphia a few weeks ago. We had Niagara Falls Comic Con a couple weeks ago. It has been fun times, and as a result, I have so much cool content bring to you professional artists independent artists sketch duels writing panels so much cool stuff so please stay tuned be patient with me i've got a shit ton of editing to do uh, but today we're going to start off with a bang i'm going to have a conversation with the legend himself mr jim shooter if you're not familiar with jim shooter please give this episode a continued listen because we talk about some very cool stuff we talk about his origins in the comic book industry we talk about dazzler's effect on the comic book shop industry as well of course as the secret wars so like i say tons of cool shit coming your way but for now please enjoy my incredible conversation with the one the only the legendary mr jim shooter uh, hi kids, that. my name's Jay, I'm hanging out as your host this weekend, uh, I assume you're all here, and uh, I'm going to assume you're familiar with the legendary Mr. Jim Shooter, yes, indeed. Thank you, thank you. Uh, so yeah, we're, we're nice and cozy, intimate here, so please, if you have questions, throw up your hands, and uh, you know, we will happily indulge in those questions. Um, I have a question, because sure. it fascinates me that you started doing this professionally at, what, 15 years old? 13. 13 years old. I yeah. I go back enough. How did something like that happen? Well, um, you know, my family uh, uh, wasn't doing well. We needed money. If you're 13 years old, they're not going to hire you in a factory. Uh, so I was trying to think of what I could do. And I love comics. And it occurred to me that somebody got paid for writing these things, you know, or creating them. So uh, I, uh, I had just come across these newfangled Marvel comics, you know. I've been reading DCs, and the Marvels just seemed much different, much better, revolutionary. So I actually studied the comics for a while, tried to decide why I don't like these and why I like those. And when I thought I was ready, you know, I thought I got this cracked, you know, I got this case cracked here. Uh, I, I wrote uh, a story, and I didn't know what a script looked like, so I drew the pictures as best I could, and lettered in the balloons, designed a cover, uh, colored that with my colored pencils so they'd know exactly what I wanted. <laughs> and, uh, you know, sent it in. I got a letter back from the head editor of DC Comics, Mort Weisinger, and he said, send me another one. I said, okay. So I sent him two more, and uh, then he called me. I live 400 miles away in Pittsburgh called me and he said, uh, we'll buy these three and I want to start using you as a regular writer. He said, from now on, I'll give you assignments. I said, great. Your first assignment is Supergirl, 12 pages next Friday. Okay. So I started working for him. He thought I was a college student. I mean, he knew I wasn't, you know, older guy. And then uh, one time he said he wanted me to 
you say, look, I want you to get on a plane, come up here to New York, spend a week. You know, we'll put you up in a hotel, pay for everything. Let's spend a week coming to the office. And I'm thinking, oh, how's that going to go? You know. <laughs> um, so I hesitated. I didn't know what to say. And he said, how old are you? And I said, well, I just turned 14. He says, put your mother on the phone. <laughs> so I had to put my mother on the phone. And she was on board because, you know, I, we needed the money. And uh, so she had to come with me on my first business trip. And it was great, you know, other than the fact that it's a little dorky having to take your mother with you on a business trip. <laughs> but uh, um, they took us to a Broadway show. Uh, it, was, it happened to be It's a Bird, It's a Plane, It's Superman. Wow. So my editor, who was a big shot, and he had arranged that he took us backstage. They took us to dinner every night. I worked, I worked in the office every day. And my mother, I don't know, walked around, you know, looked at New York. Wow. It was great. And uh, it was all kind of magical. I mean, it's amazing. But I kept working at DC for that guy for five years. Right. Then when I he, sorry, when he found out your age, was there, because it doesn't sound like there was any hesitation then. He just didn't care at he all. He said, if you can do it, he said, he said, I don't care how old you are. He said, if you can do it, you can do it. He said, I'll, I'm warning you, though, I'll treat you just like I treat everybody else. And I said, sure, fine. I didn't know that meant he was going to scream at me and use all kinds of obscene language and stuff. But that was his MO. He was famously mean as a snake. And uh, uh, um, so, uh, you know, that, that's just what he was. And when I figured that, at first I felt bad. This important man from New York is telling me I'm a moron all the time. And then I finally realized, no, he does that to everybody. That's his M.O. That's what he does. He just he, he, he insults you so you won't ask for a raise, you know. So anyway, but, but he was, uh, I learned an awful lot from that guy. He was very smart. And not only, he not only did he teach me about writing comics, but he sat me down with Jack Adler to learn production and printing production, uh, people to learn more about inking and coloring and, and, and all of that, touch on a wood. And, uh, uh, and then he also taught me a lot about the business of the business and a lot of financial stuff I learned from him. That I, think I still used to wonder, why, why is he telling me all this stuff? Why do I need to know this? You know, unit costs and, you know, uh, print runs. And, uh, yeah, I, it's like... Um, so his assistant told me one time, I asked his assistant, Nelson Birdwell, he said, uh, why, is, why am I doing all this? And he said, he's training you to have a job like his. I said, the, the moron? <laughs> why? But, uh, but apparently he thought I had potential, and I didn't end up working at DC in that capacity, but I did at Marvel. I was an editor-in-chief, vice president at Marvel, and all that stuff came in handy. So did you, was there high school or? Oh yeah, I went to high school. Yeah. At the same time you're doing all this? Yeah, you take I did high, high school all day and comics all night and weekends. And, uh, uh, you know, and I, I, I didn't think I was going to end up in the comic book business. I, I was taking every, I took six years of science and four years of high school. I took every math course they offered all the way up to calculus, probability, and statistics. I, I took a special after-school science class. It was called biology research, where you worked with a researcher from the University of Pittsburgh. You know, it's like a lab assistant. Um, I was, you know, I wanted to be a scientist, right? But I love comics. And then after five years of doing it, and I, you know, like graduated from high school, I already got a good job. Well, why not just keep going? Wow. And I um, loved it, and I still do. Um, it's, uh, it's been a good ride. It's amazing. Um, was there a gap? Uh, you went to university in between DC and Marvel at some point? I had a scholarship to NYU uh, 
it was what they call university scholars. They pick maybe two, three students a year, and they give you, you could design your own curriculum. You, you get all kinds of good, really good scholarship, paid for everything. He even gave you a, a, what they called a, a cultural stipend, so you could go to museums and, uh, you know, Lincoln Center concerts, stuff like that. Uh, but I, I, I was up to my ears, and I'd just gone through four years of going to school and, and working, and I would still have to pay my back taxes and feed myself and all that stuff like that. And I just wasn't ready to face another four years of uh, school and, you know, and then keep trying to keep up with it. I asked my editor, Mort Weisinger, I said, is there something easier I could do? And uh, I, I said, like, editorial work, you know, that I could do from home and, or from wherever I lived and, uh, you know, do it on my own hours and stuff. And he said, no, I need you as a writer. I'm thinking, you know, you've been telling me I'm a moron for five years now. <laughs> you know, you need me as a writer. Well, so I quit. I, I just, I left. And I, I went over to see uh, Stan Lee. And, and to my amazement, not only did he take my call, he said he'd give me 15 minutes. I walked out of there after three hours with a job. Uh, the trouble was, the job was an office job, and it was, there's no way I could go to school and do this job. So uh, I uh, had to move to New York. I was 18, didn't have any money. Um, I lasted about three weeks, and it just, New York was too expensive. I didn't really have any friends there, place to stay, or, and I was 18. So I, uh, I finally just reluctantly uh, let that go and uh, went back to Pittsburgh, where I started almost immediately getting advertising work uh, in comics format advertising work. I did comics ads, type ads for U.S. Steel, Levi's Jeans, some other places. And uh, I, I, that paid real well, but I didn't like it. Mm. I, liked, I liked the comics That's and uh, went back to that eventually. Right, right. Yeah. Um, so how was the arrival at Marvel? Because uh, obviously it's a whole different company, a whole different universe, characters you're working on. Was it very exciting? Well, it was only three weeks. I mean, and, and Marvel was just this little tiny few rooms with very few people. It was Stan who ran everything, except his Uncle Martin was the owner of the company. And so he kind of had to do what Uncle Martin said. It wasn't really his uncle. It was a relative by marriage. But that, anyway, he called him Uncle Martin. Um, and uh, uh, so Stan ran everything. His assistant was Saul Brodsky, and Saul did everything Stan didn't want to do. It was legal, technical, financial, or complicated. And so he was kind of the production manager. And then they had a, f a few people. I think Maurice Severn was there, uh, a guy named Mori Kuramoto. It's like six or eight people. That was it. And I was the first editorial. I was going to be Stan's assistant. Uh, Roy had been, Roy Thomas had been his assistant for a while, but Roy wanted to be a writer. And so Roy was uh, one of the first people besides Stan to do a, a lot of writing for Marvel. And um, so I was going to sort of replace Roy in a way. Uh, but it just, just couldn't do it, couldn't hack it, didn't have enough money, didn't, right. did, didn't have a place to stay. Saw what the rents were, and it was more than I made all month. Uh, so at what point in your career was the, the, the next return to Marvel? Well, the next return to Marvel, first of all, I, I, like, I, I did the advertising for a while. That was all right. And, I, and then I, uh, I started getting freelance offers from Marvel. And 
did did some freelance stuff for Marvel. Usually it was when some other writer couldn't make his deadline and it had to be done. It had to be done like last minute, you know, overnight and all that. So if you see a lot of books back in the uh, 70s where it says somebody else plot, Jerry Conway plot, script Jim Shooter, that's what the situation was. Jerry couldn't get it done, so they sent it to me. So I was like the, you know, the utility infielder. And... Uh, and then I did. I started doing some stuff for DC too, freelance. And I was still doing little advertising here and there. Um, and then uh, DC wanted me to be uh, exclusive, and so I was for a couple of years. I wrote Legion of Superheroes and Superman. Yeah, it was it was alright. Uh, I worked with Julie Schwartz, who learned his craft from Mort Weisinger, who was always telling you how dumb you were. Um, and uh, we later became very good friends, uh, Julie and I. Um, but uh, uh, then Marv Wolfman called me. He was editor-in-chief. It would be the end of 1977, 1975, 1975. He called me. He asked me how I'd like to work in editorial at Marvel. I said I'd consider it. So I flew up to New York. I was still flying, I think, student standby, so it was like 50 bucks round trip. Um, so anyway, Marv explains the job to me. He said, we have proofreaders now, but the thing is most of the books come in finished. Like the writer sends a script directly to the penciler, penciler sends it back to the writer, he writes the dialogue, then he sends it to the letterer, and then the letterer sends it directly to the inker and arrives in the office finished. And there was always lots of mistakes or you know, uh, stuff that was, I don't know, just stupid or whatever. I just so there were there was all this last minute fixing going on in the production department. Panels being redrawn, things being relettered, things being then of course they had to be recolored. And so uh, he said, I got an idea. He said he said instead of just having proofreaders check the books when they're all finished, you'll be the pre-proofer and you'll look at like the plots and the, and the art and and as it goes along. And then that'll prevent, you know, the giant catastrophic mistakes at the end. I said, pre-proofer? You want me to be the editor? He said, oh, no, I'm the editor. I said, you're the editor-in-chief. You're asking me to edit the books. And he said, well, I don't want to call you editor. <laughs> I said, I don't care what you call me as long as you pay me. So he decided he was going to call me associate editor. But I was the editor. And uh, so uh, I did that for two years. Uh, Marv was gone after... About three months, uh, he was going to be replaced by Roy. Roy backed out at the last minute. Uh, Jerry Conway came in, and it seemed to me like it was three weeks. Some people said, no, it was five, Jim. I don't know. But he was there just a few weeks, and he couldn't take it. Um, so he quit he, to become a contract writer. And Marv was also made a contract writer. Um, and, uh, and then after Jerry, Archie Goodwin took over. He, he lasted 19 months. Archie was like a calming influence. He 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 wasn't going to get into fights with anybody, but but he uh, you know he also sort of decompressed the place because it used to be there was all this office politics crap and the, the Roy people didn't like the Lenmar people and uh, you know but Archie kind of calmed that all down. Uh, but he he was wasn't Archie is probably the greatest creator we ever had. Uh, he wasn't. Uh, an administrator, and he hated dealing with the bean counters and the lawyers and his eyes would glaze over in business meetings and 
you know, he just thought he didn't want to deal with that. He just wanted to do creative. And uh, so finally, you know, they ran out of warm bodies and uh, they gave the job to me, you know, and uh, I was there 10 years. That's amazing. Um, any questions at this point? Anybody curious? Um, we could obviously, we can spend hours talking about Jim's entire career. So I've kind of just picked out some tidbits that, you know, uh, have aroused my curiosity. One of those was being uh, Dazzler. Dazzler. Oh, and good story. It was uh, the fact that, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but Dazzler was the very first direct-to-sales yes, comic it was. book. Can yeah. you tell me a little bit about that? Because that's, that's a huge shift in the industry. Well, we, we, we created the Dazzler because our business affairs vice president and company counsel and one of the few great executives that Marvel ever had, the only one that I could think of who actually read the books and knew what was going on, um, other ones... They had no idea. They they'd never opened a comic book. Um, licensing lady at Marvel once told me, she was all excited. She said, I just made a great deal for Wonder Woman. I said, Gail, we don't own Wonder Woman. It's DC. And like, what? We don't own it? <laughs> Why don't you check the list? You know. Anyway, uh, so but Alice was on the ball. And so she when she became business affairs vice president, she, she started like trying to develop business. So one of the things she realized was that like Archie Comics had had um, a, a musical group called the Archies, right? It was studio musicians who did the music, you know, uh, and then Archie would do the comics and there was animation. And she said, why can't we do that? We'd do better than they would. And uh, so she made a deal with Casablanca Record and Filmworks uh, and they were all gung-ho to do this. And uh, uh, um, so we created a character at Alice's behest, me and a couple other people, John Romita Jr., I don't know who else, <clears throat> created this character, Dazzler. And just to show you what era it was, her first name was Disco Dazzler, uh, we thought better of that after a while. I mean, we, we, before that ever saw print, we, we got rid of the disco part. Um, and uh, so anyway, uh, uh, we created this character, and, and they loved it. They loved the character. And they said, great, we, we want to uh, do this, launch this venture with a half-hour animated TV special. Okay. And uh, they wanted uh, a lot of stuff they, they, I'll tell you in a minute that, that, that in particular they wanted in it. So, and for some reason, to make some window, it had to be done in a tremendous hurry. And they, they told me, you hire anyone you want. Hire Harlan Ellison if you want. I said, yeah, but we want it next year. <laughs> you know, and I thought about it. I said, who's going to do this? Archie Goodwin is probably the best writer, but, but there's no way he's doing this over a weekend. You know, um, and so, and I didn't think some people were appropriate. And I, I just, I thought, I got to do it. There's no one else. And so I thought, well, either I'll be the hero or I'll be the goat, but I'll do it myself. I didn't pay myself. I thought it was part of the job. Um, so I wrote this story and, uh, uh, it's presented to the Casablanca people and a meeting is called and the guy is like looking at it and he says, this is not a half hour animated special. And, like, Damn it. and he says, this is a feature film. <laughs> and so they started trying to develop it as a feature film. And one of the first things that happened was, uh, I don't know if any of you are old enough to remember the movie 10 with Bo Derek. It was quite a huge hit. All right. Bo Derek was the hottest thing in Hollywood right after that movie. Well, this was right after that movie. So Alice Donenfeld, our VP uh, Business Affairs, she 
flies over to France, goes to the Cannes Film Festival, and she somehow weasels her way into seeing Bo. Nobody did that. I mean, that was impossible, but, but she got in to see Bo. She gave Bo my treatment, and uh, she read the treatment on the spot and agreed on the spot to become attached. Attached means you're committed to doing that. Of course, if you've got a star like that, an A-list star, then everybody, all the big studios want to, want to do it. You know, when Travolta wanted to do Battlefield Earth, they didn't care if it was any good. We're doing Battlefield Earth. So, so anyway, that, that was, it was one of those deals where it did, almost didn't matter to the studios if the thing was any good. It's just that Bo liked it. Um, so it, Casablanca takes over then, and they had a bidding war going in Hollywood. All, every studio wanted to do Bo's next movie, <laughs> you know? And, uh, and uh, her husband was John Derrick, who was a failed director. He hadn't gotten work as a director for years because he was famously over budget, late, and bad. And uh, so Bo was trying to use her celebrity to revive his career. And so she changed, she, she amended her attachment agreement to say that her husband had to direct it. Everybody dropped out. <laughs> It took Bo several years to finally find somebody who would accept that deal. And so they, uh, her husband directed a Tarzan film. She was Jane. And it was way late, over budget, and bad. And it ended both of their careers. But uh, be that as it may. So we were that close for a little while. All right, so we had this character, Dazzler. What are you going to do? You know, Claremont looked at it, Chris Claremont. And he, said, he, he said, he, first, he all, the only reason he looked at it is he hated when other people used mutants. I said, Chris, you don't own mutants, you know. <laughs> Back up, pal. And so, so he read it. And the way, Chris's way of, of uh, complimenting you is saying, can I use her in the X-Men? <laughs> so I said, yeah, okay. So her first appearance was actually in the X-Men, I think. And then, uh, uh, then we wanted to... Uh, Launch the book with her. What are they going to do it anyway? You know, maybe the, some other people will do a Casablanca-like deal with us. So um, at the same time, the direct market was really starting to grow. And I, I, I saw some of the numbers. I thought they're almost self-supporting. You almost could do an exclusive for, you know, just for the direct market. And I thought, well, let's test that. And so I said, we're going to do Dazzler number one as a, a test, direct only. Everybody's saying, no, why? No, use the X-Men, use Spider-Man, use... And I, I said, no, no, that's not a test. This is a test. <laughs> right. if, we, if, the, if the people want Dazzler, you know, and uh, it's not doesn't have the cachet of the X-Men, it's not, not around forever like Spider-Man, I said, then we'll know if this is going to work or not. So we sold 428,000 copies from Jeez. sale, direct. 428,000. So I said, I guess it works. So we did some exclusives after that. But that, that was how that all came about. Yeah, to give you like a slight idea, what a top-selling comic today may be $120,000 to $150,000, and it's usually Batman. Batman so. number one of a new limited series, or X-Men number one of a new limited series. Most of the average comics are way down right. below yeah. 30000 A lot of them selling eight, ten, twelve. It's amazing. I mean, my era wasn't me. It wasn't just me. It was all of the great people that were there, um, the average Marvel comic sold 300,000 copies a month. Average. X-Men sold it's up near a million. If it got done under 200,000, we'd think about canceling it. Meanwhile, DC, they had exactly three titles that sold over 100,000. Uh, Titans, 
Justice League, and something else. Superman was right dead even at 100. So when we canceled Dazzler, it was outselling Superman by 80,000 copies a month. Because, but that wasn't good for Marvel. Wow. So could you say that the you know Dazzler had a little bit to do with uh, solidifying a good foundation for the amount of comic shops we have today? And yeah, I'd say so. I mean, but the whole thing, the direct market was growing anyway. Um, I mean, the industry was in a death spiral, uh, and uh, it was 1978. They uh, hired me as editor. I was told by the president, you're here to preside over the death of Marvel Comics because it's a loser business. I'm getting us out of it. And he wanted to go into children's books and animation. And I said, you're wrong. I said, this, uh, this can be big, and we can make it big. Uh, it's going to take time, and I have to change some things. And uh, uh, first of all, he didn't think that was possible. I said, if I beat my projections or if I save money, can I plow that money back in? He didn't think either of those things were possible. He said, he's do whatever you want. He said, I don't care. He said, just try not to lose money until I get us into these other businesses. So uh, the good news was everybody else was going out of business. Warren went out of business. Charlton went out of business. Harvey stopped publishing. Archie bought no new material. They were all reprint. And DC on one day canceled 40% of their titles. That's a hell of a year. Um, but that meant there were a lot of people out there, a lot of unemployed talent. And I was able to get Louise Simonson, wonderful. Uh, Larry Hama, that's like winning the lottery right there. Right. Yeah. Uh, I got Archie Goodwin to come back. He had left staff. I got him to come back. Uh, we had uh, uh, all these other great editors, Jim Salakrup, Carl Potts, Bob Budiansky. I put together the A-team, you know. And uh, if I get any credit, I was on their backs. Uh, but uh, <clears throat> so we turned we started turning around and the direct market started right about then well now we're producing better, better books I got us on time I said alright we're going to be on time we had books that were six months late six months we had books I had books on my desk that hadn't yet gone off to the engraver and the, the printer in January of 1978 that were six months late I had, uh, we were supposed to ship, four, we were supposed to publish 45 color comics in January of 1978. Uh, <clears throat> only 26 made it out the door. Wow. Now, what happens is that means that 19 books didn't show up at the time you scheduled for separations and printing. So you pay anyway. If a book doesn't show, you pay anyway. So then when the book does show, you pay again. And so it's no wonder we're losing money. Well, I fixed that, and all of a sudden I had money to play with. And I started paying people better and, and nice. installing benefits yeah. and stuff like that. And was able to get some really good guys. And, and we were doing better books. And so the shops were doing better, and then there were more shops, and the whole thing was growing. And the rising tide lifted all the boats. DC made a comeback. Uh, they, they started doing good stuff, Watchmen, whatever. Right, right. And, uh, uh, and all these little companies started up. Because now there was a venue, there were enough comic shops, so you could be, you'd be a small publisher and actually make a living at it. Uh, uh, the Cerebus, uh, Elfquest, uh, the, uh, the Distant Soil, uh, you, you know better than I do. Uh, Ninja Turtles all started up. So now the whole business is prospering. And a couple of big companies started up too, Pacific Comics and First Comics. And we helped them because it really didn't matter if they were competitors. It, it mattered that we were growing the industry, you know, rebuilding the industry. We just wanted everybody to succeed because, okay. because First Comics is going to do stuff that we'd never do. And then maybe the guys who were in there buying American flag pick up Frank Miller's Daredevil. They like that too. 
All right, fine. Segment the market, you know. So we we uh, we were really into uh, trying to build the industry and grow it, and it it did quite crazy. It worked. And Dazzler <laughs> Dazzler was an experiment along the way. Wow, love that story. Thank you. We have a question. Yes. Thirteen. How did, how did that happen? Can you tell the story of how you were able to... He kind of did. I kind of did that already. I, I was did 13 and late? sent the stuff into D.C. and they didn't know how old I was and so I got away with it for a while. Then they found out and then kind of said, eh, okay. They got over it. It's all, well, you know, I mean, there there were a lot of rough patches along the way. I went through some real hell, but uh, all in all, it was a pretty good ride, and uh, it still is. And uh, I, we're, when things were good, wherever I was, where things were good, it was it was very good. I mean, when Marvel, when we turned it around, and we got started and going, and every everybody was making money, everybody's happy, the fans were happy, the shops were happy. Uh, that was a great time. You know, and then same with Valiant. It was tough getting started, but once it was going, it was it was wonderful. And then the other companies too. And also, if I was like writing a series I liked, like I wrote for Dark Horse, some of the same stuff I wrote at Valiant: Doctor Solar, Magnus, Turok, Samson, Sonic, what else? Anyway, uh, no, I mean when things were good, or they were very good. And when there were hard times, well, there's hard times. But what are you going to do? Did you prefer writing or editing? Uh, again, if it was a good situation, it, editing at Marvel was wonderful because I had all these great people, and uh, I didn't have to tell Larry Hama anything. I mean, we could discuss philosophy. You know, we could talk about, you know, uh, our approach. You know, as opposed to, you know, you're you're not doing this right. You know, um, same with Louise or any of those guys I, I just named before. They, they they all knew what they were doing. So then it was just a matter of like working with these brilliant people. And trying to come up with, you know, to make it better and better, both for the employees and, and staffers and everybody, and for the, the readership, for right. people who, who bought stuff. How can we, what, what can we do that's interesting and exciting? And we did a lot of stuff that just, you know, was kind of off the wall, like uh, the Marvel Handbook. Right. Yes. I mean, you know, it's like I was in uh, Barnes and Noble, and I'm looking through books. And I find these books, uh, the guy's last name was Jane, and then uh, he, he had these books like Jane's Fighting Aircraft and, and Jane's Ships and stuff like that. So I pick out, what's this? I open it up, and there's like a picture of an F-16, and then down the side is all of its you know, payload and its range and its speed. And I said, oh, that's interesting. And I picked another one up. It's about ships. I said, yeah, great. So I bought those books, and I took them. Uh, back uh, to the office on Monday, and I, I, I put them on Gruenwald's desk. He said, what's this? I said, have a look. He goes, flip, flip. And he says, we can do this? And I said, yeah. He said, can I do it? I said, I said well, why am I here? You know. <laughs> and, and so he did. He knocked that out of the park. He made it a little more than the Jane's books. He, he made it into really like an encyclopedia. But I didn't care. I mean, I, I tried not to micromanage. That's how he wanted to do it. I didn't see any reason why not. It wasn't damaging any characters or hurting anything, as I could tell. And it just, you know, it was a lot of work. But he wanted to do it, so fine. 
So we do stuff like that. I mean, you know, and then Secret Wars, the first giant crossover, and um, I don't know, all kinds of things. And, and uh, I always knew it was a good idea if DC did it a year later. <laughs> um, that's a perfect segue you make because in this situation I can't let slide the opportunity especially since it's timely to ask you about Secret Wars uh, how did that crazy idea come about? Well, uh, Kenner Toys uh, licensed DC's characters for superhero action figures and the toy companies all spy on each other so Mattel finds out and Mattel thought, just to have a hedge against Kenner, they ought to have some superhero action figures too. So we're pretty much the only game in town. And so they came to us, and uh, they're talking to these crazy licensing people we had who didn't know which characters we owned. And so they're, they're reading from the list. Oh, I got Ghost Rider. I uh, got uh, Daredevil. The Mattel people are like, who? who? What? They'd never heard of them. So as was often the case in meetings like that, I, somebody, you know, the president has me summoned. And so I went in and I'm explaining to the uh, Mattel, or, yeah, Mattel people, they said, we, we've got lots of great characters, Thor and Iron Man and all these other ones. I was telling them all about them. And I said, and some of our characters have had some big exposure, like Spider-Man and the Hulk were on TV and so forth. And um, so they said, yeah, but, you know, the, 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 how many people out of a thousand know your character is what they called your Q score, right? And so Superman, of course, had a worldwide super high Q score. You know, we ask a thousand people if you heard of Superman and 990 of them say, yeah, sure. You know, whereas with Spider-Man, it would be a much lower number, um, even though he'd been on TV. And then with the other characters, not, not very good. So, uh, so they said, yeah, but you don't, you don't have, you know, Q scores like they do, because Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, and Robin were the big four. And I said, it's true. I said, however, you're going to sell a lot of toys in this market, direct shops, comic shops, conventions. I said, trust me, you will sell a lot of toys there. I said, and people who go to those shops and the conventions, I said, they, they know all of those characters. They, they've heard of all of those characters. I said, and, and by the way, you should know that we outsell DC five to one, you know, and not only in that market, in the newsstand. And um, so that convinced them. And they said, well, could you do something to get publicity? I said, yeah, I'm going to do a 12-issue story with all the major heroes and all the major villains. I guarantee you it'll sell well. And I said, I'll, I'll see what I can do to get some, some PR. So uh, that's why we, among others, I wondered, I figured you're going to a war. You, you come back changed somehow. You don't just go to war and come home just the same another day at the office, you know. Um, and I told all the guys, this is going to be in continuity. This series falls between the December books and the January books. So in December, you get your character Central Park. He's going away for a while. And then... And in January will be when he comes back, and there are going to be differences. Um, you know, the thing's not coming back. Um, uh, Spider-Man is going to have a new costume. What? Um, and you know the other things. Uh, Iron Man has new gadgetry and all, all this stuff. So uh, um, Colossus has had a fling on Battle World when he was having a romance, kind of a forbidden, you know. Maybe, older, younger romance with Kitty Pride, just, just romance, that's all. Um, so a lot of difference, a lot of, a lot of changes. 
And uh, so, uh, uh, sorry, right. so I had to plan all this way in advance so that the people knew what to do in January, you know, in their books. And we did. And, and I know a little bit about the toy business. So I, had, I made sure that Spider, the first time Spider-Man's new costume would be seen would be in January, which is where when Mattel had their toy fair. They had a special toy fair of all their own in Scottsdale, Arizona. So all these toy buyers from all over the country are converging on Scotts, uh, Scottsdale, and the Spider-Man 252 comes out, and it's nationwide news. All the big papers uh, across the country, all three wire services, radio, TV, got them a lot of publicity. So the guys, the buyers, are on their way to go look at the Mattel toys. All they hear about is Secret Wars. You know? <laughs> so, so they were aware of the toy. And then I also timed the origin of the costume for August. That's when Mattel sells in the Christmas toys, and we got another burst of publicity for them. So they were very pleased. And uh, it's just because uh, I knew a little bit about what I was doing there. But uh, so anyway, we you know it was uh, that was how it, it came to be, and we just tried. It, Mattel didn't have any approval, or and I wouldn't have let them, and they, they didn't interfere with us at all. Uh, the name, one of their executives was telling me about some other project. And they had, did a focus group, and uh, the, the words the kids liked best were secret and wars. <laughs> and I said, secret wars. It's, it's on another planet. Nobody knows. It's a secret. So, so anyway, uh, uh, that's, there was one Mattel contribution. But, but other than that, they didn't interfere with us at all. We just tried to do the best story we could. And, and people seemed to like it. And uh, it sold yeah. humongous numbers. Um, yeah. It was art. It. it was good. Yeah, well, in a way, they're great art, too. I mean, I had yeah, Zach and yeah. Beatty, so you can't, you know, it really helps to have the great artists. Really For does. sure. Yeah. Um, when you come up with the idea, look, Spidey's coming back with a new suit. Is that yeah. the kind of thing where I'm not going to worry about what happens after he does? That's the next writer's problem? Or did you, yeah, more did or you less. guys plan it fairly far? No, no. I, 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 I told the guys, I said, look, I said, the thing is obviously alive. It reads his thoughts. It designs itself according to a costume he saw previously, the new Spider-Woman's costume, also designed by Mike Zeck. And um, I said, it's obviously, at first, not a threat, or else he'd sense it. You know, So it's a benign thing, you know, and it's obviously alive. And I said, they said, what do you want us to do with it? I said, anything you want, you know? And so... Which was what I usually did. I wanted them to figure it out, you know. Um, and and so they think about it for a while, and then they say, "We're going to make it a symbiote." That's eh, not the most original idea I ever heard, but okay, fine, it's a symbiote. Well, but then they knocked it out of the park. They right. did such a good job with it. The letters are coming in. The sales were incredible, and and it was so successful. The PR people, well, I told them, I said, "I'm changing Spider-Man's costume. You should do a press release." And the Marvel PR people said, "No one will care." Well, then when 252 came out and all the radio stations and TV stations and wire services are calling and they want information, I walked down to the PR office. I said, you know, Pam, people care. So they had to scramble like crazy to kind of take care of all this media. Uh, that same day, that same day, I get a call from uh, the licensing people upstairs. They never came down to our floor because that was the jungle where the weird creatures were. Uh, they just, you know, it was, the stair there was a stairwell. But no, they wouldn't come downstairs. They'd call me. 30 feet away, they'd call me. Um, and so I get a call from, I had like two licensing people, international and domestic vice presidents, on the phone, and they're screaming at me. You idiot. 
We had this red and blue costume licensed all over the world, <laughs> and you changed it? And I said, relax. Like, I can have more than one suit of clothes. You know, it's, it's okay. I mean, it'll be fine. You, you, it's going to ruin everything. By the end of that day, they had gotten calls from licensees all over the world, and they wanted the black costume, too. <laughs> so it doubled their business. They didn't do it on purpose, but I mean, it worked out really well. And it was such a success, sales-wise, in the comics, with the licensing and the toys and stuff. It was such a success that Marvel actually, the president of the company, had the stationery changed. The whole company had the letterhead, the envelopes, and the business cards, which used to have red and blue Spider-Man on them, had the black Spider-Man on them for two years. Wow. I have it on my show and tell. I'll show you one of my cards down there. I have the old one and the new one. Well, but, I remember we accepted it. We were like, this is, like, eventually, like, it was just long enough. I don't know if you guys, like, read it at the time. When I remember being when I was a kid, I was like, this is how it is now. This is Spider-Man, and he's way cooler. And, you know, the thing is, what the original question was, how much involvement did I have right. down the road from there? Well, no, I pretty much let them do what they wanted. And... um and they were doing so well with it, and I couldn't find anything. I mean, it wasn't like I needed to go coach them. They were doing fine. And uh, I had a good editor on it. I can't remember who, but, but it was, it was, they were doing fine. Yeah. And then uh, I, hired, I hired this this young man, this kid. I never heard of him, Todd <laughs> McFarlane. Um, he'd been working at D.C., uh, but he was Canadian. And I guess his work visa was expiring, and he needed a green card. To get a green card, you have to have a guarantee of work. And DC would not give him one. And uh, he came over to see me. And I looked at his stuff, and it was kind of weird, but it was really exciting. And, and I'd never heard of him. Uh, but I thought, yeah, this, this guy has potential, you know? So uh, I gave him a guarantee of work, and he started working at Marvel. Did something for Louise Simonson first, I think. And then, uh, he's, then uh, Jim Salakrup got him on Spider-Man with uh, uh, David Michelinie writing. And two of them were the ones that decided to turn the black suit into Venom. And that's still around 40 years later, so, right. you know, I guess that's all right. And, and the black costume's still around. But that was really Michelinie and, um, and uh, Todd McFarlane. And you have to give Jim Salakrup some credit because he had the good sense to let him do it. Right, right. Yeah. Was that considered a risk, putting McFarlane on Spider-Man with such a wacky, weird style at the time? Well, there was some controversy. It was about the time I left, and there was some, you know, some some tr noise made about it. I mean, some people said, "Well, it looks so different. It's it's not like on model. It's not what Spider-Man looks like." I always was real flexible about style. I mean, the ed editors before me, some of them, they wanted everybody to draw like John Buscema, or or before that, like Jack Kirby, or. You know, I mean, they they wanted a certain look. You know, uh, the, 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 the sort of the Joe Sinnott and and you know, top end artist look. I, I was much more flexible about styles. I thought, no, it matters if you if your style is consistent, if it's if it resonates, if it's if it's believable, if you if you can get yourself into it. Um, you know, and, and it matters uh, if it's uh, if you're telling the story well. That's what matters. And uh, so, I mean, for instance, a couple editor-in-chief people who were writers at the time, um, no, that wasn't at the time, uh, an editor-in-chief and, and a former editor-in-chief, when John Byrne came to show his samples, they didn't like him. They said, nah, this guy's no good. I said, what do you mean? It looks great. 
you know, I said, yeah, he's got some drawing flaws, and, you know, I, you know, I don't know how well he's going to tell a story yet, but, you know, this guy can draw. And uh, they didn't want him. So I was only the editor then. I wasn't in charge yet. So I said, look, everything's late. Why don't we get the guy doing fill-ins? He's fast. He's good. And so uh, the editor told the editor in chief told me, uh, "All right, then it's your job to keep him busy, and he can only do fill-ins." <laughs> you know. Well, he did exactly one fill-in, and the, that editor was gone. Archie was in charge. Archie liked his stuff because Archie had, was smart. And uh, and next thing you know, he's doing team up, and the next thing you know, he's doing X-Men. So and and the rest is history. It was the same thing when Michael Golden showed up. Same people said, "Ah, too cartoony. Uh, looks looks Japanese." You know. Right. And Archie was actually was shaking a little bit. He was editor in chief at that point. He showed it to me. He said, "What do you think?" I said, I "Think God's a genius, you know. Well, let's get him." So Archie was wasn't around too much longer. And then I don't know if we gave him something then. But anyway, I gave him Micronauts as soon as Micronauts came along. It was very early in '78. I gave him Micronauts, and uh, that worked out. Yeah, that yeah. was good. And so <laughs> sure no, I, I really thought the style doesn't matter. Just 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 make it good, make it consistent, tell the story well, you know. The basics. It's, yeah. you know, get people, if people can get involved with it. I mean, for instance, anybody who saw Roger Rabbit. Okay. Now, it's not about, about realism or verisimilitude. I mean, the, you know, Toontown is obviously, you know, made up, right? But if you can, you know, get past that <laughs> and still, like, you know, enjoy the, the tunes and Toontown, and all, that's, that's what I was talking about. Just... Just you know, I don't care if it get, if it's tunes or Michael Golden style or whatever. It's it's it says you get people to to you know have that uh, belief in it, uh, commit to it. It's not so much suspension of disbelief. It's 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 more like uh, uh, accepting this this mm. the, this uh, uh, this paradigm, this this style, and it works for me. Amazing. Um, Jim, thank you so much oh, for sharing Oh, sorry, guys. I talk too much. No, no. We're just out of time. We could listen forever. Mr. Jim Shooter. Thank, thank you very you much. So much.